This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay. And we don't have Mawera with us today because it is Jack's birthday. Happy birthday, Jack. They're having a barbecue on the beach this afternoon. But I am joined from somewhere in Dunedin by Scott Forrest. Welcome, Scott. G'day. How's it going? Where are you? Um, Just a Kind of up the hill a little bit from the octagon on York Place. It might be stretching back a little bit now, but how was your how was your lockdown? How were your bubbles? It was actually really good, and uh, so I I'm in a flat of of six people, um, and we adopted a seventh for the the lockdown period, um, which is yeah enough for two teams of ultimate frisbee, which is great. <laughs> Mostly students. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was what three PhD students, and then myself and um, a master student, and a couple working professionals. And so, yeah, all young people, and we we became quite close during lockdown. So it was yeah, it was a good time, really. And everybody enjoying the the forced change in how they were working, or how they were studying. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we kind of took to it quite well, actually. And everyone seemed to be relatively productive and nobody made too much noise during the day. And, and yeah, for me anyway, it was a really quite a productive time. Um, and what are you studying? And so I'm doing a Master of Science in Wildlife Management and I'm studying the movements of the Kaka at Orokinomi. How did you get into that? Oh, good question. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in engineering um, back in Australia and then did some volunteering and enjoyed the outdoors and otherwise liked animals and enjoyed research. So uh, I thought I would come over and then ended up doing kaka. Um, I guess I yeah, was fascinated by them, the birds, um, the first time I saw them. And there seemed to be a bit of a hole in the research regarding their movement. So it seemed, seemed like a perfect opportunity, which it has been. What made you come across to the dark side of the biological sciences? Mm. Um, yeah, I guess during my honours, I, I thought that I, I really like research. And then I was at a point where after that, and you go on to master's or PhD, you can kind of, choose any field somewhat <laughs> in hindsight this 
is somewhat diluted, but it, it works. Um, and then, yeah, at, animals have always fascinated me more than anything else. And so I yeah, decided to, to make the switch. So what are you doing? Well, let's let's take a few steps back. So we've talked about Orokanui before, but but you can give us your 101 on what Orokanui is. Well, Orokanui is an eco-sanctuary surrounded by a fence that keeps the mammals out. And there's a few of these, the most um, probably notable. Um, and the first around the country was Zealandia in Wellington. And basically, they're a refuge for species that don't do well in the presence of mammal predators and stoats and possums and rats, particularly. And yeah, Orokinu is an excellent example of this. And there's some amazing species there that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the fence that surrounds them and all the work of the people there, um, Kaka included. And yeah, I guess that's a, a run so out. So what drew you to the kaka? Hmm. Um, I, can't, I can't remember exactly. I, I initially wanted to go more in the neuroscience route and kind of model, model their behavior based on their, their kind of underlying cognition. And they, they're quite a large species that's a little bit easier to understand some of their behaviors than than some of the smaller birds and um, just because they're quite vocal and have a nice big brain that's very adaptable and so i thought that would be a good a good species to study for uh, modeling their movements and that's kind of what got got me in that path of kaka initially um, and then yeah kind of worked with um the funding we got which enabled us to do some things that weren't quite so theoretical and a bit more practical and possibly a bit more useful for the immediate but future. We hear stories about the Kia being particularly clever. Is the Kaka also a clever bird? Yeah, yeah, it's very clever. Um, it's hard to say whether it's as clever as the Kia or not. And I think the Kia has been studied a little bit more in tests of cognition, so using tools and that kind of thing. And there, there is some really good cognition research happening up at Vic, uh, where they're looking at how they learn and who they learn from um, in in the little kaka groups. And I, yeah, it's hard to say whether they're as smart as Kia, but they're definitely definitely up there in the intelligence of birds. They're they're very clever, and they presumably live in trees. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so well, they nest in cavities and then um, spend a lot of the time kind of in in the canopy of the tree. But they do forage on the ground quite a lot. And you notice that if you go somewhere, um, or in particular, I went to Fenuaho, Codfish Island, and I noticed them when they were foraging for food, they were most of the time on the ground when you'd see them uh, looking for grubs and um, fallen fruit and stuff like that after a mast. And um, so they, yeah, but in, in a population such as Orokinui, where they, um, yeah, they seem to forage in the trees a little bit more. Maybe they're aware of the presence of predators on the outside um, through a selection process. So you said that the, the sanctuary is a refuge for species that don't respond well to those mammalian predators. 
what are the risky bits in a carker's life? Mainly they're nesting. So as an adult, they're, they're pretty well fine. Not much will, will hurt them in trees, um, but it's when they're on the nest. And so especially in, in a forest such as we have here, which is not a beech forest with big tall trees with cavities in them, the cavities are a bit lower and they're pretty easy for a, a rat or particularly a stoat. And they'll smell, smell them out and then usually eat uh, the female and the eggs. And so you notice in populations with a lot of predators, um, so for instance, in the Eglinton Valley, um, in previous years when there wasn't as much predator control, you'd get a, a bias between males and females. So you'd end up with six or seven times as many males as there were females. Um, and that's just because they get eaten on the nest. But now in the Eglinton Valley, where there's a very thorough predator control, it's back to about one and one. And so that's their most vulnerable time. And how many are there? In New Zealand? Yeah, well, let's start with that. Yeah. Um, well, hard to say exactly. And there's quite a few populations and... Yeah, there's quite a few populations on the North Island, probably a few more than on the South Island. Um, they are separate subspecies, but um, they're not they're not too different. Um, but probably it would, it would be a guess, um, but maybe five to ten thousand, something like that. Not too sure. I wouldn't quote me on that. So, how are they classified? That's a good question. Um, I think nationally vulnerable possibly and um, yeah i i'm i'm not certain to be honest and how, how many have we got so there's probably about 40 or 50 at Orokinui. so there's just a, a wee little population and they they seem to be breeding quite well and so they they breed um, every year in the presence of supplementary food um, otherwise in the wild they typically just breed in mast years and so they, they are breeding and there's new juveniles every year. And so hopefully it starts expanding in, in the coming years. But where did we get them from? They didn't just arrive. Mm, no, they did not. Uh, so they, a few get released from various places every year as well, as well as the ones that are born in Arakanui. There's um, captive raised ones. And uh, so some come from Tiana and some come from the Dunedin Botanic Gardens. and. There's some from Willowbank, some from Invercargill in Queen's Gardens. And so a bit of a range. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have, in your eyes, Bad Bad Not Good. And somebody else, Charlotte Day Wilson. Why this one? Uh, I, I quite like this, this band. They have a, a very nice um, kind of rhythm, lots of nice percussion. and. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I like the the beat and the Charlotte Day Wilson has a quite a quite a nice voice. Thank you. 
we've had the background to the Kaka. What are you doing? So uh, we've got uh, two different types of, of transmitters that we've got on Kaka. And we've got some VHF transmitters and some G- GPS transmitters. Um, but I, yeah, I guess probably before that, I should give a little bit of preface. Um, so the, the population has been relatively stable at about that 40 or 50 birds for the last couple of years. And we, we know that they're breeding and there's captive birds being released every year, but the population isn't increasing much as yet. And so there must be something we assume on the outside of the fence that's um, taking them down, basically, um, either predators or um, something in the human wildlife interface. And so basically the purpose of my research um, is to try to find out what that is and whether we can do anything to help them. And so we have, yeah, a few VHF transmitters, which must be manually tracked down. And then we have some GPS transmitters that get a location about every three hours and then they'll last four to six months. And so we get a really good idea of where they're going um, day and night. And then we can look at those areas and see what's there basically. And what sort of range do the birds have? They don't range too far. So probably the, probably the most widely ranging one and they all vary quite a lot. Um, But the one that ranges most widely probably goes about two kilometers out of the sanctuary and, and back and forth. Um, and then kind of in roughly circular kind of home range around that. So, um, yeah, it's probably about two kilometers across and two kilometers, two kilometers, um, back and forth to the, the eco sanctuary. I'm in Sawyer's Bay, so not quite this far. Yeah, not, not quite yet, but I would imagine that would be one of the, one of the first places they would go as they start to expand. There's some really nice habitat there, and especially just up above and kind of on that northeastern side of Mount Cargo where there's really nice podocarp forest and broadleaf forest. So there's probably some really good nesting habitat in there. Um, but it could be just that they haven't explored that area yet. So as, they, as the population gets bigger and they start to flow out, then, then we should hope to see them around there, I would imagine. So is the thought that the sanctuary will be a like a home base or is it the, the sort of the, the 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 germination of the population across the across a wider space? I mean eventually you would hope that there would be birds that would breed safely outside the sanctuary and there would be essentially distinct populations um, outside the sanctuary at the moment it's very much uh, the source um, and there's a bit of a sink outside where they're um, yeah doing doing best inside the sanctuary and haven't started um, being independent um, from what I found anyway but I also have a bias because I'm tracking the ones that we caught inside the sanctuary and um, so it is possible that there, there there are some that are reliant on the sanctuary now um, but yeah, eventually you you would hope that um, Kaka inhabit all of the areas of of native bush that could sustain them, basically. So somebody else is thumbing its nose, thumbing its wing at you, having a party and zooming around all over the place. You can't catch me. Yeah, yeah. 
they're they're pretty difficult to catch. <laughs> How do you catch them? Sneak up on uh, them. The, um, well, they catch kia like that sometimes. They use net guns to catch them occasionally. Um, but for the kaka, um, we have the advantage of the having an aviary inside the sanctuary, which they um, recognize as a source of food. Once once we put some food in there and take it away from all the other sources of food inside the sanctuary, and after a couple of days, they they figure out that's the place to go for food, and then one day we just shut shut the door, um, and then yeah, that's. That's the first option. And then the second option is to try to lure them into smaller cage traps um, near the feeders and that kind of thing. We just put nice food in there and, um, yeah, wait, sit and wait. Um, and then you, it's, I presume it's some kind of backpack. Yes. Yep. And uh, so there, there's a loop um, that goes above their wings and a loop that goes below their wings. And then these two loops are connected in front um, with a, a weak link. So a couple of threads of cotton, which will pull off if they get snagged in a tree or the cotton will degrade over time and the backpack will fall off. And then, yeah, the transmitter just sits on their back and their aerial kind of pokes in with their tail feathers. Do you try and retrieve the backpack at the end? Yeah, yeah. The hope is to get them all back um, before they drop off in, in a period of time which we don't know exactly when will be um so we can get the data back intermittently and um, so we we're getting data and kind of updating our models as we go along um but yes we do intend to retrieve all of them and, and you're you're mapping it you said you said you're getting the data back every mm. so often yeah you're building that up into a, a map of where they are where they go yeah yeah so i can basically import that data straight into Google Earth um, or uh, we'll be putting it into GIS software. And then, yeah, we get the maps of, of where each kaka has been. And so, yeah, we can see it um, not quite in real time, but um, everything up to that point in time. And so, yeah, we've, we've already got some really interesting insights um, as to where they're, they're going. So how long have you been actively monitoring them where they're flying? About two and a half months now for, for the first ones. And how long will you be sticking at it? Probably about another two two to four months, hopefully towards four months. And so with, with the VHF ones, you have to go out and roam around with an aerial to try and find them? Yeah, yeah, which is an advantage for some for some things. And so for determining their their home range and, and where they're going at night and um and the kind of finer scale stuff, then VHF um has its limitations. But yeah, basically they, they send out pulses of um radio waves and you can use that to to triangulate a quite a rough location. Um, but they are very useful for finding nesting locations and that kind of thing. Um, GPS signals get blocked by trees and canopy a bit more than the radio signals. And the, red, the VHF tags will last a couple of years. And so they're, they're a bit more of a long-term monitoring and 
kind of making sure that they're um, still around or, or breeding or, or not dead as they have a mortality indicator. So have you been surprised by anything yet? Yeah. Yeah. There's some things that we kind of expected or weren't too surprised by, and that was the differences in kind of movement behavior of different age groups. Um, so the younger ones range very widely all throughout the landscape. And then the older ones don't go very far at all. <laughs> they just stay kind of by the feeder, um, which is understandable. Um, but some of, the, some of the things we have been um, surprised to see is that they have a period of activity, which we've noticed uh, for pretty much all of the kaka. Um, they have an active period of about an hour or two at about 1 to 3 a.m. And, and this seems pretty consistent over over pretty much all the birds that we have transmitters on and then pretty much every night as well. So there's this period of time about one to 3 AM when they all wake up and then they do something and then they're, they're quiet again until dawn or just before dawn. So yeah, I'm not sure if it's a, a social behavior or a some serious party going on. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, Pretty pretty hard party goers if they go every night. Yeah, if you listen in, you'll hear them say they're not looking. Quick. Yeah. Meet yeah, you down by they, the big tree. <laughs> yeah, they they do make a lot of noise around that time, so they Yeah, it could could be getting up to something a bit raucous. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orakanui, Dinin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mahi aroha nui, kia koutou, koutou ho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope that wherever you are and whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together has proven to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect unique and here making things better thank you so i've had a very exciting time of course i've been really looking forward to talking to you all about it just love these five minutes together each day it's so incredibly helpful to me reframing my life my day into what i hope can be a helpful and creative experience for us all so as we know hey hey hq Beautiful Mahuika had a number of fertile eggs that fell on the ground, became cold, and only one hatched. Beautiful Kornui, the rest have been returned to the earth. And her sister Maya, who's very beautiful, also has become clucky and was nesting in the funarium in the hedge. This very beautiful and ornate space filled with many different species of ferns, which she just really loves. And yesterday, my wonderful goddess mother Virginia and I managed to successfully move Maya into a new mansion that we had constructed and sealed and painted with beautiful oil and put mesh on the bottom and put wheels on the bottom so it moved around. He mowed the entrance to the Vejo sanctuary where Maya is going to be 
having her wonderful maternal experience. And it was all very exciting. And then this morning, <clears throat> it was very intense because, of course, we didn't know if she would stay on the clock, as they say. She may have given up and hopped off the eggs because she'd been moved. But I went down there this morning. Countess Vera Rosikoff, who's one of the other beautiful hey hey, my sister came with me and she was making lots of inquiries as we were walking along together. I didn't hear any sounds coming from Maya's new maternity ward. And I just very quietly and carefully opened the wee door on the side and I could see that she was sitting on the eggs and she had stayed on the clock. So I was just absolutely over the moon and absolutely just so happy and so grateful and so joyful. And so, of course, today I'm actually picking up eight more fertile eggs from the amazing goddess Stephanie Kalmakoff, a.k.a. Egg Woman, who, interestingly enough, is also a midwife at Queen Mary Maternity Ward at Stuneden Public Hospital. Very interesting connection there. So it's very exciting. So I'm going to pick up these new eggs and then carefully at lunchtime sneak them underneath maternal mire and then hopefully they'll all hatch and so I've been thinking about names and everything and I think the first one could be Tumanako which of course is wished for, longed for, dreamt of which is a beautiful name also the name of one of the Takahe babies that we had up at Ottawa. But very exciting so of course this got me thinking about the courage and the tenacity of all life of all mothers, of all of us who have these longed-for dreams, precious, precious eggs of potential, these wonderful things that we want to birth into the world. And I know all of us have these. And the courage to, even when situations change and our circumstances change unexpectedly, we moved from the comfort of the funerium into a new maternity ward to actually bravely continue to nurture these dreams, nurture these things that we hold close to our heart to being, these unique gifts that we have come into the world to share, when we courageously continue to share them, despite changes in our external circumstances, how brave we are, how like the warrior goddess Maya, the hen, we are. So I really hope that for you, you can see how in your own life you're doing this. We've all had so many ups and downs this year, so much changing around us. Just like Maya, the mighty mummy hen, I know that we're all still on the clock and we're all still protecting our babies so that they can hatch, sharing all these beautiful, precious gifts with the world, making it even better. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Scott Forrest. You come from Australia. How's the family doing? Yeah. Good. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's safe in South Australia. Um, so shout out to them if they listen to this. Um, but yeah, no, South Australia has been relatively, uh, well, until a couple of days ago, has been pretty pretty tame on the COVID front. Um, so they're all doing well back there and enjoying mostly normal life. So you could go and see them, but you couldn't get back again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good way of keeping our researchers focused. <laughs> Hold them prisoner. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it, it works. <laughs> We've seen lots of changes in society over the the last few months what do you think will stick and what do you hope will stick yeah yeah it's a good question it's always interesting to to think about because at the time you 
things become very clear that that work and don't work and it's always interesting to see if those things are remembered or forgotten um, but i think one thing that would be would be good and i hope to see more of it and it seems to be heading that way anyway is having a day or two working from home a week and um, it seems like a, a good good way to balance work and life a little bit i think um, and yeah can yeah make a bit more of a a bond with with your home life and that kind of thing i think it's shown us that we can prioritize not just what's urgent in terms of work priorities but some of these things that we get also involved in office politics don't really matter yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's good to yeah, it was quite an interesting experience in that regard to kind of take a step back and, and look at everything that matters. Your study's been able to carry on. Do you have colleagues whose research has been disrupted? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my flatmate is doing his PhD on penguins and he does a field season in Antarctica well, he was intending to do one this season and, and that's been called off. So he's a bit disappointed. He went last last summer, um, but he won't be going back this year. So that's a, a bit of a, a hit to his um, enjoyment of his PhD, but also a, a quite a big loss in data as well. Um, so that's probably the most um, yeah immediate effect. Yeah, it's quite tricky to work from home if your work is in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. Yep. What lessons do you think we can take from how we've responded to the pandemic for though the bigger questions, things like climate change, biodiversity collapse, or, or social inequity? I mean, if anything, it's it's shown that um, you can essentially rally the troops if you need to, um, and you know get everything behind every everyone and resources behind a single cause if if the need is pressing enough um and yeah and i guess that's the the key point if if the need is pressing enough and so yeah things like climate change and um, environmental action um just seem to kind of be off in the distance a little bit and not as immediate um but yeah it can really it made, made it very obvious what can be achieved if if everyone is is on the same team what do you think we could do to make those sorts of things more apparent that they are in fact pressing yeah i mean for me um keeping up to date with what's happening in the scientific world um which is often where we we see the the things that are collapsing or the the things that are going wrong are usually revealed to us by science first before they become um kind of a problem to to everyone's everyday lives and so i think yeah it's hard to say to everyone that they should be kind of more connected with science but i think yeah uh, if there could be more coverage of of the pressing issues and giving 
yeah, priority in media and that kind of thing um, for, for those issues. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It comes from the top, but it also comes from everyone as well. It's challenging when the science becomes politicized. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, it's very hard to dis- disentangle um, well, politics from anything, really. Um, but yeah, I think there's been some some interesting and good progress towards kind of cleaner energy alternatives um, that have have come from all this, possibly. I suppose that you're doing a Master's of Science in Wildlife Management, so the balance between the the pure science, if you like, and the, the humanities of the, the management aspect of the people, mm. it, th- those things must be integrated. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's often a kind of trade-off for kind of how theoretical you go, which might push the scientific field a bit further forward, but you won't get benefits from until that's applied elsewhere. Um, And then some of the more immediate practical matters um, that, yeah, really matter in the, well, in the short term and in the long term, of course. Um, But yeah, there's definitely a trade-off there. Um, but it's it's very important to to keep both in mind, and I, I think, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive either. And I think communication of science is a very important thing as well. Is that communication a thing which is a, a focus or a feature of the the study you're doing? Uh, not explicitly, but I've had some. Uh, really good opportunities um, like through our Nui and their outreach program and to to do some some science communicating um, which is yeah it's yeah it's a wonderful opportunity and you really you're really reminded of you know what matters and and you know there's little point in in doing science if it isn't applied or communicated um, and especially with you know, having school groups in it's you can really kind of inspire some the next generation of scientists or uh, managers or conservationists or activists. I think it was Bill McKibben that we spoke to once who said something like he thought that it was just a matter of understanding the science and it would all be well clearly they all are, clearly they will all do what they're supposed to now and then he realised that he had to actually do something about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you can get pretty caught up in that as well. Forget to to communicate it. Not everyone understands what you've what you've learnt. Yeah. Let's take Simon and Garfunkel, the only living boy in New York. Why this one? This is older than you are. Yeah, yeah. Some of the best music's from back then. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I started really appreciating this song. Uh, probably in the last year or, or so. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I like Simon and Garfunkel, um, but this one really kind of, yeah, I, for me, it kind of got me really interested in their music and really beautiful harmonies. And, and yeah, I think it's just a very uh, 
pleasant song. I have some questions to end the show with. 
What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Mm, I've had some of achievement success, I guess, from all photo competitions and that kind of thing. Um, but as far as uh, long-reaching effects, um, I mean, I think having the opportunity to do this this research and this master's has been really great. Um, it's It's been an interesting journey because I – um, self-funded I don't get student loans or anything so I've I've taken part-time work and part-time study and it was a bit of a deterrent initially so I um, wasn't completely sold on it but now that I'm doing it it's obviously a, a wonderful thing and then I think it will bode well in my professional life but yeah it's quite hard to pick out one thing in particular that's all right We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in the team. What is the superpower that's got you into the mansion? Curiosity. I think a desire to learn is, um, yeah, probably from my my family, I would say, that influence. That came from your family? Yeah, yeah. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? I, I'm not an overly kind of boisterous activist, I guess. Um, I like to, I think, I think everyone has a part to play in um, the kind of whole area of activism and mine's probably a little bit more subtle maybe. Um, so I'm not typically out there holding banners or um, shouting from the podium, but I, I, I think I'm doing my bit. Um, so I think um, the way I engage with research and communication is, is I guess, my form of activism activism what motivates you what gets you out of bed in the morning i just love learning basically and i think that really kind of keeps me yeah it keeps me motivated throughout the day i just yeah there's not enough time in the day for for all this exciting stuff and there's yeah just so much so much interesting stuff that hasn't yet been understood or is been understood by other people, which um, I can use to then understand things that haven't been understood by other people. Um, so, yeah, I think I think what initially got me into the research pathway is, is trying to understand that things that people um, haven't haven't understood yet. And I guess that's essentially the goal of science and research. And so, I guess, yeah, that really keeps me motivated. Is that what they would have told you in engineering? There's so much not yet understood? Or would engineering have said, yep, it's all down to these principles? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think in kind of applied engineering, um, you you stick to the, the known laws. 
Um, but there's some interesting research in engineering. Um, yeah, my thesis was quite interesting, studying, studying waves, um, which you think there would be all there is to be known about waves, but they're, they're very complex. Um, but yeah, I think if, if you're um, studying or yeah, kind of applying engineering and, and building things, you probably don't want to go too far out of the known laws. <laughs> so what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Writing the thesis. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm yet to get into the, the nitty gritty of the, the modeling and some of the more theoretical stuff. And I think that'll be a good learning experience and a challenge. Um, and then, yeah, I guess bringing it all together is always, um, yeah, the most important part in the end. Can you look ahead to potential management implications of the research? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know exactly what form they'll take. And there's, there's some of the kind of community stuff, um, which ties in with Taylor Davies Colley's work, which is engaging members of the community and making sure that they're safe in the human-wildlife interaction. Um, which we've found has um, can be quite uh, detrimental to Kaka. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, I'm not too sure exactly what what form it'll take. It would be it would be great to kind of get some nest boxes out there eventually, but I don't think that's um, in on the cards right yet. Um, and lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Mm. Um, I'd say remember to give yourself time to read. And so it doesn't have to be anything uh, paradigm shifting or too literary, but I think um, the act of, of reading is, is good for, for anyone. Um, I think, yeah, giving yourself a little bit of time to, to not forget about that is, is good. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we're going to go out to Crosby Stills, Nash & Young, Carry On. One morning I woke up and I knew Fuck!
their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from the Otago Person of the Year, Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Scott Forrest in central Dunedin. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.